I I think we're live. It's working. Dave, it's live. Yes. And we're on LinkedIn. And welcome, Mahi, welcome to Happy at Work. The podcast is all about empowering workers, bringing happiness into the workforce, bringing on brilliant, successful guests like yourself. And without further ado, let's just jump into it. So Mahi, maybe you could introduce yourself to our audience, to to and no pressure to the 500 million people on LinkedIn to say a little about who you are, what your company's about, and then we could uh, you know, talk about it. Perfect. So uh, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Phenom People. Uh, we go by Phenom. Uh, that's, uh, that's who we are. Uh, but it's, it's super exciting to be here uh, on the podcast, uh, Jack. It's a pleasure, uh, Lauren, and also Michael. Uh, thanks for inviting me. So as a company like Phenom actually... Uh, really lives with a single purpose that is helping a billion people find the right job. That's the only reason why the company exists. And uh, we are always really thought about building a purposeful company. That's what we're really doing. And what we do in a nutshell is uh, we are an enterprise SaaS software. We help larger enterprises to really create an amazing talent experiences for their key stakeholders. In talent, life cycle, there are four key stakeholders, the candidate, the recruiter, the employee, and the manager. We give all of them a very simplified, very personalized and automated experience throughout their life cycle. And that's what the product does. We do this for over 500 companies across the globe, over 400 million people use our product. So that's in a nutshell who we are. See, this is so wild. When we first spoke and you mentioned about, hey, we want to help a billion people. The cynical New Yorker in me was like, a billion people, what? That's, and then as you walk through it, yeah. So maybe you can say, so you have, because you do it differently. Most people think of a job board, you know, you post a job and that's it. Maybe you could kind of elaborate how you, how you power basically job boards. And that's how you have so sure. much reach. So when we really started the company, we thought like, why can't job search be more like shopping? So we created an e-commerce infrastructure for all the major companies. So what happens is when you are really looking for a job in major companies like Honeywell, GE, like Microsoft, DHL, what you see is our product. It's very personalized for you. It gives you a hyper-personalized experience in any channel, whether it is web, mobile, bot, or an SMS. And what happens is it's always relevant to you for what you're really looking for based on the location, the type of the job and the type of the experience you have. We collect the data and give it back to the recruiters whom they can really react fast based on the, the kind of needs they have in the current market, everything is super tight. And then that really goes to the employees. Who are the employees who want to grow within the company? How can they have an experience which is very relevant to them? And that's one of the things why we always think about career pathing and really give them an experience which is relevant. And then you have managers. Who are the people who actually hire? And how do you give inputs to them using AI? Who are the best fit based on all these conversations? And that's what the platform does. So we call ourselves as talent experience management platform where we give a very relevant experience for each stakeholder. Mahi, this is really interesting. I also teach a, a nano AI course at Harvard, and I'm, I'm curious, could you walk through a, like a, a customer experience, like a, an example 
of when things work really well? Like what is your perfect example of an experience from, from start to finish? So the experience is, let's say I'm looking for a job. I, I work in, um, let's say, uh, in one of the restaurants. And then I'm really looking for another gig where I can really uh, have a different time shift or whatever it is. What you need in that particular time period is it should be very fast, quick. I should find the right job super fast. How do you make that happen? Okay, and what we do is in that particular process, if you're really looking for a job, let's say on Hilton, or you're looking for a job in Inspire Branch, whether it's a Dunkin' Donuts or whether you're looking for a job at uh, Whole Foods, what we do is the minute you come in, we try to understand who you are and try to give you what is relevant for you. For a frontline worker, the most important thing is the distance to the job location. Oh. <clears throat> right? Like uh, if it is more than five miles, yeah. you don't travel because you don't get paid to that level where you cannot, you can travel like 40 minutes. So what is relevant for that job family for that location is very, very important. If you're in New York, it's different. Five miles can be really computed a bit differently because you have a commute. But whereas if you really live in, let's say, um, Columbus, it's different because the five miles do make a difference. So it depends on where is the location, how do you really personalize for that job? But that is for a frontline. In a frontline use case, it's not about skills. It's about what is the money you're paying, like what is the time and like what is the slot you're really giving? And the third one is what is the distance? But let's say you're really looking for a nurse job. A nurse really operates a bit differently. In the middle of the country, the nurses think differently versus uh, the nurses who are really working in the cities are different. So how do you give them, like, what is a time shift? Uh, like, what is the time they're really looking for? Nursing is all about time. Right now, if you really look at the market, there are three types of nurses really, really uh, came up into the forefront. The typical full-time nurse, which is what you really see. The second nurse is the hybrid who are available only on a part-time basis. Then you have travel nurses who can travel anywhere. But the pay you basically make is entirely different. There are a lot of nurses who want to become travel nurses now because an average pay of a nurse full-time is about like, let's say 80K. Whereas if you are a travel nurse, you can make up to 250, but you have to travel. That's a big difference. It's, it's a humongous difference. So how like your age group matters, where you live matters, what is your family situation matters. So how you are searching do give clues. Now, if you really go to a different uh, use case altogether, whether it's sales or development. I don't need to go off on a tangent, but that just blew, blew, blew my mind away that $80,000 to $250,000. Now, is that why when we saw for a, a few months back where so many nurses were quitting, is that why they were quitting? Because they felt, wait, if, if you're giving me grief and I'm making, I'm making a good living, but if I can make 250,000, I'm leaving. Is that, is that what happened? Yeah. So for everyone, the 250 won't make a difference because if I'm a mom with two kids in high school, uh, like I cannot travel like that. Uh, okay. But if uh, so I'm, I'm single, like now it's, it's a, and if I can okay. work in, like let's say Hawaii, it's it's an awesome offer. So it depends on demographics, where you are in your life, how these things are connecting. They're very critical. See, this is so interesting because like not only is a job like the jobs itself, 
but the data you have, you can really kind of predict the trends of what's happening and where people are going, what they're doing. I mean, this is, this is really wild. I mean, Tess, I think you had something. Uh, Mahi, just to, just to follow up, when you talked about the most important thing on these frontline workers is the, the five mile distance. If I was an hourly worker, I might not think that way. And I'm wondering who was thinking the five miles is really important. Is it the AI that has discovered that through uh, mining data, et cetera? Or is it like a filter where the applicant is saying, I don't wanna go past five miles? So uh, here's what happens in the high volume hiring, you basically uh, churn people over 70 to 90% of the people every year. That's, that's, the, that's a beast of high volume hiring. Like you cannot do anything about it. Like you lose people and you bring people faster. Uh, they're not like traditionally people sit on the same job. And what happens is in the price point, what people normally pay, what happens is how much is there for commute is a very important factor. And normally people who are working an hourly job, they won't just work on one job. They work on shifts. So now if you are more than five miles on three shifts, like you cannot really travel. So whether it is five or 10, it depends on the location. But the five is very commonly utilized notion based on how people come and go. So we constantly see where are these people and how are they really applying, what are the trends are. And when, when we really look at the data, we constantly see these threads are really moving. And the number of people apply for a job are relatively higher in a frontline worker use case before COVID. But after COVID, there are too many options for frontline. Wow. So now how much automation you have to like, an example is the COVID has started, like most of the retail spaces are closed. Most of the hospitality industry is closed. They all move towards logistics because everybody wants to deliver things to their homes. Mm -hmm. So everything really, all the people move towards that. Now the market came back after the COVID app, actually we accepted with the disease or what, what the problem is. And then the retails and hospitality companies are opening up, but there are no people because the logistics companies are still thriving. So now you have very limited pool of people, but has to be distributed everywhere. What happened? 60% of the pay raises. So the average price of an hourly worker, $7 have moved to 20 almost in every spot of the world. Like, especially, I mean to say, in the North American universe. Mm -hmm. Right, that's and, and... Sorry, my head. I just think this is fascinating. So you're just, just even taking into consider commute and how far the commute is, you can start to see how complicated it can be just with that variable that seems pretty straightforward, right? In terms of how you measure it and how you kind of think about it for any one candidate. I was curious about something that's even maybe more complicated, how you think about like the fit between a candidate and a, a role. Um, so one of the things we were talking about before you got on was this idea, and I know you know this, you probably know it way better than I do, but the idea that women tend to 
um, want to make sure they meet all the qualifications for a particular role before applying compared to maybe men. And so I don't know, I just wondered if you had any thoughts around how you think about the qualifications fit um, in the work that you do. Yeah, so the first thing is we, when we really look at a job, each we really look at jobs in five zones, zone one, two, three, four, five. One, two zones are the zones which are frontline workers where you have limited skills, but it's more about like, can you really do a particular job in this particular domain? Whereas four and five are all knowledge workers where skills are more important. Now, uh, like, and then you have three, which is in the between, like uh, where uh, admins or somebody which is call centers or whatever it is. Now, what happens is, the type of the job really determines how people apply. And if you really take women into the consideration, like they're very cognizant about like what they want to write on their resumes. They won't write anything which they don't believe they have real strength on. But a lot of men really uh, are much more uh, flamboyant about like writing their accomplishments <laughs> much more faster. For you try to say men tend to exaggerate a little bit more about what, what they uh, can Like do I think so. <laughs> yeah. so. I'm shocked by that. I'm shocked. Yeah, I don't yeah. believe that at all. <laughs> so there is a gender gap definitely exists everywhere. There is also, uh, and also there is also another element. Uh, the people who live in cities, coasts, are a bit more uh, like illuminated, like in terms of like how they really think about their accomplishments compared to the people in the middle of America. And these demographics are very common and you cannot really say the cliches as single point of contact, but they do have their own connotations. So when we really look at matching, skills are the only things which are digitized, but skills are not the only things to find a fit. You have competencies, you also have behaviors. So the competencies and behaviors are not really digitized yet. So all AI is doing is skill matching at the best. And the rest is all a prediction. And the next 10, 20 years is all about how much competencies infrastructure will turn into digital format is where the matching engines will become much more stronger. The matching on knowledge worker is much more stronger in terms of pure AI. Whereas in the, in the side of frontline worker, the matching is more based on the context of the job. Makes it's sense. not purely skills, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Mahi, when you talk about the competencies and behaviors haven't been digitized yet, could it be as simple as Laura's applying for a job and you give her an emotional intelligence assessment on her competencies of let's say, you know, listening and empathy, et cetera, and you plug that into AI with that? Could it be as simple as that? Or do you think it's more complicated to digitize things like competencies and behaviors? See, the digitization is when you really do an assessment and I really find out who you are and really match it. That's one thing. But that's not the only way to really find competency. Uh, like if I work in a particular company, uh, like how do, based on the work I did, is there any method I can really pull out what my competencies are? What kind of deliverables I have or what kind of deliverables I don't have? That level of 
really pulling out the content from or the competencies from a true uh, like work experience is not there yet. It's yeah. still still in a rudimentary phase where we have to do an assessment to find it. And there's no taxonomy for it, right? There's no agreed upon taxonomy for, for competencies. I mean, everybody does it differently. So yeah, that makes it really hard. If we had that, it would be a good place to start, right? And, and on top of it, behavior is more complicated. A behavior is good for one company's value. The same behavior is not good for a different company's value. So now, how, because how do you really define that? Like working at Amazon is different from working at Google. I'm only talking about tech side. But if you are working at Amazon Fulfillment Center, there is no comparison to Google because Google don't have fulfillment centers. So how do you really look at the, the behaviors aligning to the values is where the biggest complexity is because people don't find real meaning if they don't connect to the purpose and the values of the company. Right. And that's and, something what we're realizing. Yep. And not all companies are really clear about their values either. <laughs> you know, there's a big variability in how much they've behavioralized the values within their own organization and how much those values are actually real too, right? Yep. Yeah, that's yep. fascinating. I have a question for you, Mahi. I, I'm always curious about people's careers and kind of how they've gotten to where they are. And I would love it if you shared with us and the audience about your career and your career journey. Yeah, yeah so the, the, that's a great question. Uh, the, the point is, what I have seen is uh, in, in my career or my mentors or all the people how, whom I really uh, collaborate with, people who can switch their careers quite often can really grow fast uh, because you get like a lot more experience, which is relevant and to really deal with the world in, in a much more different way. So as a kid, I always used to, uh, I want to become an entrepreneur, uh, like uh, all my life, uh, like my dad used to own a bunch of businesses. I was always part of those businesses. And I have this curiosity to become an entrepreneur. And, uh, uh, but I, I went to computer science just to make sure I'm connected with technology. And the third thing is uh, for me, my spiritual, like spiritual evolution is what really contributed towards who I am. So when I say spiritual, it's more about like, um, can I think beyond me? It's more about like, can I think about others uh, from a perspective about like my growth has direct correlation. And that has helped me. Like I got into meditation, those kinds of activities. So if you really ask me who I am, I'm, I'm a combination of uh, like business technology and spirituality uh, with the foundation of Phenom, my family and the community I live in. So the, that's, that's what really defines who I am. And that's what really built my career. Like I was a developer, want to start a company, started my company after I got my green card, complete failure, uh, just lost my shirt. And then I thought like I should start the next one. <laughs> and that's how uh, this, is the, this is the third one. It's not because the other two are super successful. It's because one of it is a miserable failure. The other one is was okay. And uh, like, but those experiences have taught me how to build the company with purpose? How can I really think about leadership from a different spectrum? Wow. But that's such a good point because I think that also appeal applies to the people watching this in their careers. Because oftentimes I think what happens in our culture, if you fail at something, you lose a job, you get terminated, even if you didn't do anything wrong, just it happens. And you just feel, gosh, I'm a failure. And then it follows you around. But I find out when I fail, and I fail a lot, 
you kind of learn from it. You almost kind of kind of do a postmortem, like what what did I do wrong? How can I do it better? And then you use that to fuel going forward. Is that what you did with after your first two ventures? Yeah, like uh, I constantly think like eighty uh, percent of my life is a failure, but I'm I'm blissful about my failures. It's not because I'm happy about it, uh, but I'm really constantly looking at like where I failed. Can I improve uh, yeah. from that point of view? But that actually gave me an opportunity to really do what I'm really doing. But I never really thought about I'll fail. I really put a real good effort to make something successful. But I never really never cared about uh, like the pain, what it really originates, uh, because I never connected with it to that extent. That doesn't mean I'm a saint or anything. I'm the same idiot who has my own issues. But <laughs> I'm trying to say like, uh, uh, like what I'm trying I love that blissful about my failures. That's cool. Mahi, <laughs> yeah. this is great. And uh, I also co-teach uh, a class at Harvard called Entrepreneurship and Innovation. And we read about 20 books a semester. And um, I'm curious, what are some of your favorite books that you think other people could be inspired by? And by the way, I love the spirituality that you're, you're mixing in with what you're doing. I think that's a great angle. I'm curious if there's any books that, that you think other people should be reading right now. Yeah, it all depends on like uh, uh, the space where you're in like, uh, and what books are really relevant for you. Uh, <clears throat> for me, scaling is most important right now. So I'm really looking at like how to scale and how to evolve into leadership, like how to think about uh, different things on a global arena. So that's what I'm really filled with. But I'll give you the books which I really love. Sure. Uh, Factfulness is one book uh, like which is which is fundamentally defines one basic attribute, how people live, how people sleep, uh, what is their food. Uh, there is one visual which gives in that particular book is an awesome visual to understand how to think about what's our journey uh, in this particular universe. And like what, what I really felt was our purpose to help a billion people actually came out of that book. Because really? there are so many people, yep. Yeah, uh, because. The book basically defines there are 7 billion people uh, and a billion people live below $2 a day. Mm -hmm. uh, 3 billion people live between uh, 2 and $8 a day. And there are another 2 billion people live between 8 and $32 a day. And we all live about $32 and that's a billion people. Mm -hmm. So, and now, the, like our purpose is how can we help people to move from one stage to another. Beautiful. I, I actually teach that book in my critical thinking class. And uh, really? It, That's yeah, wow. I've been teaching it for the last two years. The data and graphics that they have in that factfulness book, just the way they display data is just, you, you, you pick up so much information. It's just one visual. It's, it, it really is an amazing book. Thank you. Uh, Laura, do you want to go next? Yeah, I have a question for you. You were talking about scaling and focusing on scaling. How for your own company, for your own employees, have you thought about culture and scaling culture? Like what, what are some of the things maybe you've been working on or focusing on with that? Yeah, so the, the scale and do needs, the, the culture has to be evolved as the company has to really grow. Uh, when we were, if, like uh, there's one other uh, really good uh, analogy, which I always really think about, which uh, Reid Hoffman gives, which is about in blitz scaling. Uh, it's called as blitz scaling uh, is the is the book what he wrote, and what he really talks about is 
a company below 10 employees is like a family. And a company with 10 to 100 employees is more like a tribe. With a thousand, it's more like a village. And then it becomes like a city. So as the company is growing, you are basically thinking about culture from a different premise. The number of people, how connected to you they are, is very, very important. So what, what worked when it is 10 employees or 100 employees don't work when you're a 1,000 employee company. Uh, because there are layers and layers which really got originated. Now, how do values and behaviors has to be communicated is one thing which we constantly thought about. We have defined our values long before, and they're all connected to why the purpose exists. And now what we did is over a period of time, we constantly made sure within our interview process, how do we see people, whether they're a fit for our culture? We are deliberately doing it. We have learned that from um, like what Amazon did, which is Amazon called as bar raiser program, where they have a bar raiser who basically gives like, are they really fit to have values? We did something similar to it. Like we call it as N square. We basically looked at like not normal. Can we really find those kinds of people? Can we really validate them? And we basically injected the whole process around it. So in the interview process, we make sure are people really resonating with our values? Do they have the values what we carry? Do they have those behaviors? What are the questions we should ask? How do we rate them? If we feel like they're not a fit, we basically walk away. Uh, like, uh, and even though they have skills and competencies and other stuff, because behaviors do matter. And yeah, that's how we really originated and evolving the culture within the company. That's so not normal, N squared. So you're looking for kind of people that are not just kind of mediocre, the kind of raise the bar idea, right? With the N squared thing. That's cool. Yep. They're not normal for our company. They might be great for a different company. There is no bad human being in this world. They're all great human beings. That's cool. Mahi, do you think that your technology at some point uh, would be able to identify so let's say I'm always applying for teaching jobs because I'm a teacher now, but I used to be a money manager. Would your product at some point be able to say, hey, have you ever considered social work or public speaking or going into being you know, in the medical field where I'd be like, oh, never thought about it, but the AI saw these talents and behaviors and values that I'm not seeing. Do you think we could get to that point? Yeah, so I'll give you an example. We do something called as career path. So for an employees, what is a career path they can choose within a company? So we basically give them three options. Option one is, what is a company-sponsored career path? So what a company thinks you can grow into. Or what is the market-focused career paths? For your title, how people are really, what are the five options people are really like migrating towards and really evolving into? Or you can really build your own career path. So now what happens is you can really construct towards it. And then what are the courses you have to really think about? What are the mentors you have to think about? Uh, and what are the gigs you have to really do? And then what are the jobs you have to go for? People normally think if I want to get a new job, it's just the job I have to really apply to. But you have to prepare yourself with the courses, the mentors, which is skills. The mentors are more about like give you competencies and really teach you the real-time habits. And the gigs are more about you have your own experience. So we build this infrastructure to help. Now, what happened is we also thought like, how can we 
we can give this to employees because we know about employees a lot more than a candidate. But what we quite recently did is discover new areas of work. So which are not what you're really doing, but based on your combination of experiences, like can we really give you a different path? Almost like Spotify gives you uh, discover new music. Mm. So like, and the, the, the best thing Spotify did is it's not about the genre you listen to. It's about the mood you are in and the tone you really listen to and the kind of uh, the music tonality and the sound, what they really mix and give you recommendations. So people used to think if I really uh, love rock, I'll only love rock. No, your mood determines whether you love rock or you want to go into uh, a bit of out of range hip hop, which has the same mood. Got Can it. you really give that kind of an input in jobs is what is our primary work for the last four years we're really working on. So we have tremend seen tremendous results on it. This is great. So, so I, it sounds like you need a lot more data than just me uploading a PDF of my resume to really know me. What, what other information would you want from me as an applicant to really find a good fit for me? So the one thing is we collect the data. What, are, what was your journey within this company for the last five years? Mm -hmm. And then what is your resume really looks like? And the company can ask the questions, have you ever applied for a job here? What happened in that particular front? When a job, like previously, let's say you were interviewed, what happened in that interview cycle? Then if you worked and you left, like what happened in that particular place? But that won't end there. We also look at like, if I'm Mahi, are there any people like Mahi who are working in this particular company? In terms of their background, in terms of their jobs, what companies they worked before and how they thrive within the company. So now what is happening is you're not just looking at a job and a, and a resume and matching, you're looking at the history, but you're also really correlating with the data which is actually really utilized within the company till now and how different groups it is really growing. But now the most important thing is you have to make sure it's not really giving any bias signal. Mm -hmm. So let's say a company is only hiring male in a particular demographics, you should really watch out. Is that really constantly happening? And how do you signal that in the diversity inclusion equation? And what is the company's limiter? But you also have to give awareness to the management saying like, you have a bias. And that is by default exists. Now, how do you really correct it? By giving a different target. So in, in notion like the, the data right now, the way it plays is a candidate matching to a job is not just a candidate data. It's about the recruiter data. It's about the employee data. It's about the manager data, all the data and the previous candidates, all that really has to be really put into a humongous, what do you call as deep learning model to really find what is right. And how do you really eliminate the bias is where the biggest challenges, but at the same time, it's the biggest opportunity. So at the end of the day, all of this is not to really exploit anybody. It's about like, how do you find the perfect job for the perfect person if they can really find, this is the company I want to work for. Or otherwise they leave because in today's market, there is nobody needs to work in the same job. There are so many opportunities. Mahi, do you feel that given the way you're walking us through it, that both a candidate and a person who puts the job description together, the hiring manager, 
is they have to kind of do it now focusing on AI, like how AI would process that. You know, people on LinkedIn, what do you think? Do you think they should in, in, in their mind say, hey, how, how are they gonna read this? And maybe I should tailor it or, or they don't have to worry about that. See, the resume writing skills have drastically changed compared to what they used to be, right? Like people are writing pretty good resumes, but people have to really articulate about their experiences in a very effective format than they ever used to. Because it's not just what skills you're writing, but where you applied those skills and what the results you got is a very important indicator. Most of the LinkedIn uh, profiles don't have your work experience clearly defined. So, that's, and you don't that's really a great point. That's, I can tell you as a recruiter, absolutely. It's, it's, it, they just kind of walk it through, but they don't put enough on there that you could really, whether it's machine learning or just a human looking at it, it it's just lacking and it hurts their cause, yeah. Yep. With what you were just talking about, Mahi, around kind of what's going on with the hot job market, I was curious about how, how has that affected your business? You know, just there's so many people looking, there's so many people changing. What's been the impact or maybe the challenges that you all have faced because of that? So personally for us as a company, because we all like are, um, are, People stick to our purpose really strongly. So because of that, we don't really lose a lot of people uh, uh, in, the, in the industry. And the second thing is, we, we don't really stay in Silicon Valley or some parts of the world where uh, the churn is super high. Uh, like one of the point, like uh, uh, what Jack is saying is, we're in Philly for a reason, yeah. uh, like, uh, because we want to really uh, connect with the people who can connect with what our purpose is and really build a long-term company. The same thing we did with uh, when we really built in um, uh, Europe, uh, we are in Rotterdam and also um, in Munich. And then in India, it's in Hyderabad. So we constantly really pick the locations where we, and in um, Israel, we always thought about like who can connect with our purpose, how can we really build leadership uh, to connect with it. Uh, so from that perspective, our hiring mechanisms uh, have really worked for us, and we always thought about this strongly. If you look at the market, what's happening, uh, they all want softwares like ours. We have seen growth like we have never seen. Uh, the reason is because it's a humongous market, and there is a tightness everywhere, and nobody knows what to do about it, and everybody needs people. So the biggest aha moment was before COVID, every HR team used to think AI will take our jobs away and that is not a right thing. After, like in the middle of COVID, people were started thinking how much AI can take away part of our tasks so that we can really focus on what's important. Yes. And that transition, what people thought will take 10 years, actually took two years because of COVID. So it accelerated the overall thing in a much more different format. So right now, personalization and automation are super critical for almost every employer, irrespective of where they are located. Sheer volume, right? I mean, just thinking about some of these companies, the sheer volume of applicants, and then probably having recruiters themselves changing jobs. If they didn't have a technology like this, it would probably just come to a screeching halt. Yeah, one of the toughest job right now, uh, and uh, the job where people are really seeing a lot of pressure is recruiters. Yeah. 
So it was never the case. Like hiring recruiters and keeping recruiters is one of the hardest thing today in the market. Yeah. Especially the good ones. Completely. That's awesome. With all this data, can you can you get can you predict where things are going? So in other words, can you look when you analyze all the information at your disposal that hey, this is going to keep continuing the way it is or maybe you're going to hit a rough spot? Are you able yeah. to do that? So based on what we're really seeing, uh, this, the, the continuous infrastructure of hiring is going to continue. So that's not going to slow down. Uh, that infrastructure has to solidify across every particular part of the uh, industry. But where we are really seeing differences, uh, there are like 4 million people really uh, like pulled them out, out of uh, the job universe. So that is something which might really uh, take a turn with uh, uh, with multiple aspects because people have like a lot more options right now than they ever used to. So, but we don't think anything is going to slow down. But we also have seen this is not just North America or Europe problem. This is a global problem right now. The one difference we have seen is in Europe, there is tightness in the job market, but not at the level of North America or Asia. Because we let go a lot of people in North America after the COVID started, but in Europe, they did. Because governments have funded the employers to keep people in jobs. Like in in North America, we funded people, but not the employer. So the employer basically fired and they were really paid. So what happened is the hiring rates in Europe are not at the same level because their people are their people and they're staying there. But whereas in North America and Asia, their hiring rates are much more different. Uh, so that's one major difference what we're really seeing. Uh, but across the globe, how to retain the employees is a very, very complex problem right now. So everybody has like multiple options. Is this the company I want to work for? Uh, that will continuously grow. There is no change there. The third one is about like a high volume hiring. This completely changed. It's never going to come back. Maybe robotics will really pick up a bit differently 10 years from today, but the market has like for package packaging, like a Amazon package pickers, package delivery, like our UPS or FedEx or DHL, they pay $24 an hour in certain spots. So it's the, the payments are entirely different than it ever used to be. And Mahi, I know, you know, like us, you're, you're, you look at the news, you see what the stories and the trends are. From your perspective and the data that you see from your company, has the media gotten anything wrong where you're like, uh, you know, that's, they got it wrong. Are you seeing things that just are not uh, matching with what you're reading in, in general newspapers? So on our platform, there are a million jobs sitting any given day. Um, before, a lot COVID, of jobs. before COVID, we used to have like 700K. Middle of COVID, it went down all the way to 400 so, and then right now the ramp up actually started and it moved to over a million. 
So what we're really seeing is the time to hire has really grown a lot bigger. And the retention rates have really shrinked like comparatively. So now everybody talks about, the media just talks about work from home, remote work, remote work, remote work. But that's only 40% of the workforce. Which nurse can work from home if you're in a hospital? For a doctor office, it's a bit different. So like if you are in retail, you cannot. So this remote work is only useful for certain jobs. And that is getting like, you can sit anywhere. When you say remote, the remote is not just sitting between, I don't know, Iowa to uh, like uh, Chicago to like Portland. You can sit anywhere uh, in Brazil or India or China or whatever it is. So now if developers become super complex, like how this whole thing will morph is a very different attitude. Uh, like, uh, and th that's something which nobody's paying attention towards. And like in the non, like uh, the jobs where the remote work is not possible, like people are not really thinking about those jobs at all that much. They're saying there is a need, but how much change has happened on that? Not much. Thank you. My, I saw um, that you won the EY Entrepreneur of the Year last year. Congratulations. Thank you. That's really cool. I was curious about your thoughts on why do you think you won it? What was, what was, what were the things that were kind of called out about your leadership? Um, I'd love to just hear about that. Yeah, I think my employees are generous. That's the reason I won. <laughs> Hmm. It sounds a little humble. I'll leave here yeah. real quick, a little quick um, little uh, piece of that. I did a research study uh, when I worked at Microsoft around leaders who were considered the most successful leaders in the company. And what I found is one of the primary themes around why they were successful was humility. That was the answer. The answer you just gave was the answer yeah. in the research study. You're like, my team's just awesome. Yeah. And you know they they think I'm awesome. That's wonderful, but it's about them. <laughs> so anyway, just kind of confirming that is a sign of great leadership is humility. So I love that. Well, this is great, Mai. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing all this, you know, insight with everybody. Is there anything we didn't ask that you feel before we head out that you want to talk to the audience and share, or do you think we covered most of it? Yeah, like, but we covered a lot of ground. But yeah. one thing I'll say, uh, the, the next couple of years, if we don't really think about how to make it personal and how to make it simple, and if we don't deliver experiences based on those two threads, nobody will value anything, whatever you give. It should be personal. It should be simple. Uh, and that's what, what we focus on really building a product for. Uh, in the in the HR world, and that's all we really care about. That's great. That's a good way to end it. Awesome. So, so hey, this was great, wonderful. You know, too. Before we head out, just may I don't know if you like to as you get all this data, feel free to share it because like so maybe we could share it on LinkedIn and and um, you know on, on our our newsletters and blogs about you know where the things are going, what's hot, what's not, because it seems like you're in this. You're in the epicenter finding all this information. 
And that's what like the people in the audience in LinkedIn, that's what they want to know. Like what's hot, what's not, what's growing, what's not growing, you know, where I should pivot my career to. So feel free if you have that data, we'd be glad to share it with, you know, our audience so they can keep sure. abreast of what to do. But with that yeah, being said, thank yeah, you so I'll much. Do. Okay, awesome. cool. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And, and this was a great conversation. And I think the people watching, it's really eye-opening. So they kind of, it's almost like you gave them the inside scoop of like, hey, this is what really goes on behind the scenes. And, okay. and it's going to be so helpful for a lot of people. Well, thanks so much. Thank you Hi, so thank much, you. Mahi. That was wonderful. Thanks. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Michael. Thank, thank you. you. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.